Hey, Daniel here. I recorded this podcast last year in April of 2020. A lot's changed since then, both in the world and for me, so some of this might be a little bit dated. It got lost at the time, but since restarting the podcast, I wanted to get it out. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking with Chris Hauser, the co-author of The Joy of Closure. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hi, thanks. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So one of the things that I think you're probably most well known for in the closure community is The Joy of Closure, which is a book you wrote co-authored with, with Michael Fergus. The first edition was quite a long time ago now, and the second edition is 2014. So do you want to talk a little bit about the process of writing that and kind of your thoughts now reflecting back on it after you know, it's been out for a few years? Yeah, so I think it's pretty interesting. I think the way that it came about, I had no particular interest in writing a book <laughs> as such. <laughs> but I guess what happened was Michael Focus wrote a proposal for a closure book. And I guess it's the process that Manning and probably a lot of other publishers follow, which is they don't generally have specific technical expertise inside the publishing company. So they shop the ideas around in the community to see mm. you know, what, how people respond. And I liked his outline, and I said so, and they suggested that I help with the book. <laughs> so so that's, <laughs> that's how that happened. So at least in my mind, it's definitely Fogus's project, and, and I was happy to help out and provide some thoughts. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's been a while, and I think one of our main goals was to try to stay away as much as possible from the kinds of technical things, like uh, external tooling things that might change rapidly over time. Like when it was written, Linegan was the only you know, sufficiently mature packaging building tool. Of course, now we've we've gone through a couple different options have become available and and are well used now. I don't think Closure Script was a thing for the first edition, and so a lot of things have changed. But the things that we wrote about largely stayed the same. So I think that the book has been criticized if you read some of the reviews because. We do avoid some of those practical things that a person needs to know in order to use closure, but those are the things that change. And so I think the things that are in there are largely things that have stayed the same. And I think, I think people still find it useful. It's, it's not a very um, immediately rewarding process to write a book where you chip away at it for months or years and, and don't hear anything until you're done. But now that the work is years behind me, it's great. It's encouraging to occasionally hear from people who say they read it or read parts of it at least and, and enjoyed it and learned something from it. So that's great. So yeah, I was thinking about The Joy of Closure, and it was one of the first books I read on Closure. I'm not even sure if it might have even been the first. I think at the time I was kind of keen to learn Closure, and and it was like sort of like a second Closure book. Right. Uh, sometimes people would say like you read you know programming Closure or Closure programming first, and then go into Joy of Closure. And I think in my haste, I thought, all right, well, I'll just skip the first one <laughs> yeah. and go straight to the second one to kind of get a head start on things. <laughs> How'd that um, go for you? <laughs> and it was all right. I think I got sort of halfway through programming closure and I just got, I thought, oh, I'll just go into the next one. Yeah. But it's a great book. And I think, you know, writing a, a timeless book, like, you know, I think about this book and I, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend it to someone, you know, even though it's, you know, no longer like, you know, fresh off the press. Right. It's sort of like a timeless or, you know, about as timeless as you can get with you know, a programming language. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, um, that's nice to hear. I think, of course, that owes a lot to closure itself that it doesn't. Yes. Um, a lot of the things yes. that were true years ago are still true. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you've been involved in the closure community since I think pre 1.0. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. Yep. So you've kind of seen, kind of been here for pretty much the whole ride all the way through. So I was, you know, one of the things I was interested in talking with you about was like getting your perspective as someone who was there you know, yeah. right at the start and has sort of seen closure grow and expand and the community change. And I think probably like the way closure was written, like both the, the dialect, but also like how the community process mm. has worked, I think has evolved quite a bit from when it was just a you know, very small project and now tens of thousands of developers, like you know, this very different yeah. contribution process. So yeah, I'm interested to hear what was it like back at the start and kind of what are some things that you think have, have changed since then? That's interesting. I think closure itself has always been Rich's thing, right? So even early on when he was, you know, there was fewer number of users. And so the couple dozen of us that were actually using closure regularly would hang out in the IRC channel. That's probably underselling. It was more than that. But nevertheless, it felt like a very small community. And Rich was there as support staff most days, <laughs> right? If you had a question, he was the one to answer it. So even then, it was very much his thing. And although, I mean, I was able to make some contributions to the code base early on, it was very much sort of at his direction. Like the pattern that I followed was, here's an idea I have for a thing. And I would ask him, well, should I, you know, is this something you're interested in having seen done? And I never was successful anyway in like going off and creating some change and then bringing it wholesale and saying, here, we should put this in, right? So it was always his thing, and he's written the bulk of the code and many pieces of code, even early on, that people wrote as proposals. He would take the ideas and from multiple people's contributions and maybe rewrite parts of it himself or whatever. So anyway, I say all that because I'm not sure that that's true of lots of open source projects. And I know there's been a lot of, I don't know, consternation or, or drama or whatever in the community over the contribution process. But... For me, it's the thing that explains that most is that as long as you understood the expectation to be that it was his code base and he was happy to have certain kinds of help sometimes, as long as that was your expectation, you might have a, a good time, right? And if your expectation was that it was a community project where some kind of team was going to decide where things were going or whatever, I think you might have been disappointed by the process, so... Gotcha. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, yeah, it was great early on to be able to have that kind of direct access to Rich, and he's a little harder to get time with now, um, which, of course, is appropriate as there's more of us trying to interested in what's going on. And, get his attention. Yeah. Yeah. So it is interesting how it's changed, but I think it's all good. It was good early on. It was fun to be a part of that, that early on. I think, in fact, that's my main uh, notoriety with the team, with the community, is just having been there early. I don't know that there's anything else particularly remarkable. So since that, like, the world has changed in a bunch of ways. I mean, if you think about it, those early versions were before smartphones and before cloud computing in the way that we think of it now. So a bunch of stuff has changed. But uh, there's for most of the kinds of tasks that I'm interested in trying to make computers do, Clojure is still one of the best options. So it's kind of cool to see how it's endured, and um, it'll be interesting to see what's next. I think uh, I've been experimenting a little with um, Babashka recently, right? So a Clojure variant that doesn't use the JVM in the same way, and, of course, Clojure script. And so there's interesting things going on, and a lot of other languages borrowing Clojure's ideas. So I assume we'll not all be using Clojure forever, right? And one of its benefits is 
how it doesn't break, right? But that also means that there's early decisions that it's still tied down by. And so at some point in the future, some greenfield project, someone that knows and loves closure well is going to see that for this new project, it makes sense to pick some other ecosystem where closure would have been a good choice, but now there's something better in all the same ways, right? I just don't know what that's going to look like. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens. Are there any particular early decisions you can think of that would be like that kind of thing? Or are you, are you thinking? Yeah, that's a good question. There's certainly warts, right? But I don't think they're the sort of like, so, you know, some of the old standards that I go to for that are like uh, namespaces and VARs are yeah, sort of I was, weird. I was going to say namespaces. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting how even like recent projects like, Core spec, is that how we call it? Doesn't really use namespaces in the same way. Like it's got its own, it still uses the keyword and symbol prefixes, right? But it doesn't really use the namespace objects the same way. Right. So yeah, so there's namespaces and VARs. And then there's some other things that ClojureScript even addressed, like having protocols at a lower layer of the abstraction stack. Yes. So there's a yes. few of those. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to be something else. Like what would be so fundamental that we couldn't bend Clojure to continue being what we want. Maybe something about the data structures or maybe lazy seeks being so fundamental. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe or garbage collection, like what does closure look like without garbage collection? Yeah, that's, probably that's right. Quite a different sort of like Swift style automatic reference counting or you know, other ways of managing memory or rust, you know, that kind of thing if people get really into. Yeah, I think that yeah, I don't know. That'd be pretty interesting, right? Like what would it look like to have a language with closures, you know, right, like immutable data structures and S expressions and macros, but with a memory management structure like Rust, that'd be pretty fascinating. Because there's certainly, it's absolutely applications where the JVM in its normal sense doesn't really fit. And in, in those contexts, outside of sort of the closure mainstream anyway. And so, yeah, I don't know. Mm. Memory management's a pretty good one. Yeah, I've been keeping half an eye on WebAssembly. Sure. And closure and closure scripts. At the moment, you know, there is no, it's manual memory management there. Oh, interesting. There's no garbage collector. Okay. In the WebAssembly side of things. So ah. you've got to either compile in your garbage collector, which presumably is not a small piece of code to, yeah. to include in your runtime or, you know, do something else. So, yeah, I don't know. There's, it'll be interesting to see kind of where memory management goes in the future. I think it's people are probably like a lot more, like the general public maybe a bit more interested and aware of, like memory management than they were five or 10 years ago, mm. you know, in terms of like the, you know, the, the memory costs of say scripting languages mm. versus compiled languages. I think, you know, people may be more sensitive to that um, or so, you know, certain kinds of projects anyway. So one thing that I, you know, I've, I've thought a little bit about, and one of the reasons why I originally got into closure was closures, immutability and multi-threaded sort of tools that it gave you kind of promised like we were heading to this glorious multi-core future mm. it was just around the corner right and closure had all of these different concurrency features to help you write simple code and i guess i'm interested to hear kind of your take on that and what looking back after you know 10 or more years like <laughs> which parts of that are relevant today and which parts didn't quite you know never ended up being used that much if this was a quiz i think you, the answer you'd be looking for is um refs right yeah the, <laughs> the memory management the uh what's it i forget what it's so- stm stm that's right software transactional memory yeah, yeah i have still have not had an earnest need for that 
after decades. <laughs> Even for the book, trying to think of examples that usefully illustrated it, right, was was a challenge. So, yeah, it may have been important at the time in order to bring people along into accepting a world of immutable data with reference objects. Maybe there had to be some kind of coordinated mm-hmm. one in order for people to feel comfortable and then to learn on their own that you never actually need it. <laughs> I don't know. Seems like quite a lot of work. <laughs> for a marketing stunt. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I haven't ever really asked Rich himself that question about how he, you know, looking back, what he thinks about that. But I think it'd be interesting. For one thing, you know, on the desktop, we didn't really start to get beyond four cores until like last year, mm. really. Like, I mean, you know, there were a couple of exotic CPUs that were sort of like the high end of the high end for consumer stuff anyway. And then on the, the server side, you know, they've always been higher core counts. But I guess for a lot of workloads, you know, certainly like web workloads, which is what I'm most familiar with, you know, generally you've got a you know thread per request kind of model or you don't necessarily need like multiple threads coordinating and doing work yeah. for, to serve any one particular request. So you know, those concurrency things aren't quite as or aren't as needed so often there, possibly. Yeah. I also think that when you do have to touch some piece of data from multiple threads, once you've, you know, if you're doing this from inside closure in the normal way, it sort of defaults to safe <laughs> in a way that really <laughs> de-emphasizes or, or de-risks that whole effort. So whereas... Before closure, I had I had worked on some pretty large multi-threaded C code bases, <laughs> where so I, I mean I worked on the um, the True sixty four kernel for the for, this is a I'm this was a, this, <laughs> this was um, originally Digital Equipment Court deck and then later Compaq and HP bought each other out in turn anyway so it ran on the it ran on the Alpha processor which I don't know how many people remember that either but. Um, it was a Unix, and it had a kernel that was, I can only imagine how many millions of lines of C code and how many hundreds of threads all running in essentially the same process that was the kernel. And it was terrifying, right? Like, we had a lot of really great tooling to make that work so that we could avoid deadlocks, and we had, you know, lock hierarchies and all kinds of, of tooling. But I'm sure that everything that we did took substantially longer to develop because you had to be so careful any little piece of memory you were looking at could have other things writing it at the same time unless you took the appropriate set of locks so in that space like what i learned from that for the next several years of my career was the the lesson i took away was avoid multi-threading unless you have a really really good reason to have it because it's going to cost you in development velocity right and I think closure sort of flips that. So even if you don't do it much, when you do, because it sort of defaults to being safe, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to judge in retrospect how important that is because it feels so less important when it does show up <laughs> than it did when we had to mess with locks a lot. Right. Alarm bells don't start flipping. That's right. As soon as you... So it's yeah, one of those, I think a little bit, it's a little like macros and you, know, you sprinkle it in a little bit and it makes a lot of difference with just a little bit of presence and you end up better off without ever, you know, once you're used to it without really having to think about it that much. So it's hard to say. I, I agree. We're not quite in the hundreds of core worlds that we sort of 
maybe thought we were going to end up in. But yeah, yeah. So on macros, yeah, like I think the 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 fear or the you know the the argument against macros is that you know if people you know, if you give people all this this rope, they're gonna you know hang themselves <laughs> yeah. and you know a- a the rest of the team too. <laughs> um, and like I th- I think for the most part, like closure as a community has been very like judicious. Mm. Like it doesn't really seem to be like the default that you'll be like you know going through some library that you know is in use and you end up with in some like crazy macro and you're like what on earth is going on here like i'm gonna have to set aside half an hour just to trace through this like you know there's there's certain dsls you know like composure comes to mind which you know is pretty well designed and fundamental for the community but i feel like things could have turned out quite differently yeah quite easily yeah so I think the biggest danger with macros is in libraries, right? So if once you're at sort of an application level where you're assembling things and you don't expect people to bring that code base in as a library and integrate it with other code, at that mm-hmm. level, I think the dangers of macros are quite a bit less because the only code that's going to use the macros are being maintained by the same team that's writing the macros, right? Yeah. So I think that just reduces risk in a lot of weird patterns, right? Like macros and other things as well. But for libraries, yeah, I think you're right. And I still find places, that libraries that use macros a little bit more than necessary. And, and that's, that's not a big problem, except when you're trying to do something sort of at runtime and the only way to get at the functionality is something that was packaged in a macro. And so you, you can't get to it quite the right way. So I see a little bit of that, but I think you're right. We could have gone crazy in that direction. And I think there's been enough sort of community pressure and talks like from the very first closure con <laughs> right sort of yeah just back off a little bit and so yeah i think it's pretty rare that the reason not to use a library is because of macros but man you know i mean the problem is that it's, they're so fun right it's great to be able to mold the language and do what you want so i totally understand the desire to do it and i must admit that in my own code when i don't expect a, a li- anybody to use it as a library i i give myself a fair amount of leeway to do clever little language hacks to <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah so you've been using closure for a long time now and we're going to talk a little bit more about you know your work and, and a little bit but i wondered if you could talk about you know what have you taken from closure when you're not writing closure like what are kind of your your thoughts what sticks with you yeah so i think this is where the this is where the cons the solutions that closure presents for multi-threading i think where they really shine is when you move it outside the multi-threading context. I mean, I guess I guess either way, but so a lot of I spend a lot of time these days at work doing design at a somewhat higher level, so talking about interfaces between services and groups of services and how they work with other groups of services. So there's, you know, whether you're talking about REST or GraphQL or maybe some kind of event-based communication mechanism. So sort of in this multi-system world and that's a space where there's quite a bit, it seems to me, quite a bit of background in the industry for, like, as Rich mentioned in one of his talks, place-oriented programming, right? Changing things in place without versioning or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And even when there is versioning, some sloppy thinking about what that means. And I think that the epochal model, which I think that's epochs, right? The idea of yeah. having data that's immutable and then separate from that some kind of relatively simple reference to that data. So separating that concern so that when you're talking about a reference to the data, you know you're talking about 
a thing that can change. And when you're talking about the value, you're talking about a thing that can't change and being really clear about the semantics between those two separate things. I think it's a minority, right, of web and service interfaces that expose that and do it well. And I think there's huge leverage there to thinking about things that way. A lot of benefit that you can get out of being precise about how you're thinking about those things. I mean, I assume, you know, of course, one way you could do that is is just make Datomic or Crux or something be <laughs> the language that you talk, that everything integrates through. But <laughs> I don't know how practical that is in these multi-system enterprise worlds. So if you are going to design a new, essentially a um, a little language, right? A DSL, it's essentially what a what an interface is, whether you're talking about the old object-oriented interfaces within a process or whether you're talking about like REST or GraphQL APIs. It's essentially a little a little language, right? With its own verbs. It's great to try to to be clear about immutability, which can't be everything. Not everything can be immutable. You got to have some kinds of stable references to data that changes over time. So bringing those, those core thoughts along, I think, um, can provide great leverage. And actually, the impact that can have on a larger organization or enterprise is even greater than doing it well inside of a single process in, in your code. Mm. When those interfaces are well-designed, that can have an effect on the nearby systems because they start to see how how that's used and it starts to influence how other how other systems are made. Yeah. You said you've you've done um web workloads. Is it the server side kinds of things that you're thinking about when you said that? Is that have you yeah. designed interfaces? Yeah. One of the things I've been sort of thinking about a while is like, you know, this is like half a joke, I think half true, is that like the worst insult you can give to a closure programmer is that they're they're bad at names. Uh, like, you know, naming <laughs> Yeah. Naming is like, you know, I mean, it's it's important in every language, but I guess maybe because Clojure has maybe has so few of them. Mm. I don't know, like, uh, you know, I'm sure Zach Talman, you know, literally wrote the book on, on naming. I can't really do that justice. But I think like, think, you know, thinking about names, thinking about like, just being clear on like, what is the the thing we're modeling here? And like mm. you said, like the difference between values and references, there's stuff which like clear thinking, like I think Clojure really trained me on how to be clear mm. about different things and what is the same thing, what is different in a way that carries along even when you're not using Clojure. Yeah, I agree. So, so on the show notes here, we've got this provocative question. Did Erlang have the right idea all along? Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, I did write that down. Um, let's see, what was I thinking? <laughs> so... I don't know. I was thinking about, you know, as you were pointing out, the trajectory on the number of cores that our processes are trying to wrangle isn't maybe quite what we expected a decade ago. And instead, or yeah, well, at least at least the workloads that I'm dealing with, we tend to, on a regular basis, spin up multiple virtual machines communicating across networks, right? So a um, Mm. cloud formation stack or whatever with multiple EC2 instances or however, you know, your Docker compose groups or your Kubernetes, I don't even know the right words, <laughs> pod clusters or whatever they are, right? <laughs> so closure itself does not come with tools for talking across networks, right? Like it's just not a thing that it yeah. really addresses. Whereas Erlang, that's what it is. Like that's what it's all about to the extent that I remember hearing Rich say early on, talking to some of the Erlang folks, early on in Enclosure, I should say, not early on in Erlang, talking to some of the Erlang folks about their approach to multi-threading and you know how Clojure 
provides tools to take advantage of the shared memory that multiple threads have. Whereas Erlang has sort of a shared nothing approach where you have to serialize stuff and send it over a, a wire, even if there's no actual wire there. And so it's, so I don't know. So that's why I wrote the question. Like we ended up in the world that Erlang was designed for, not the one that Clojure was designed for. And I don't, I don't want to put too fine a point on that, but if you were to compare sort of the deployment context that Erlang had in mind and the deployment context that Clojure had in mind, I think we're closer to what Erlang was designed for. So, you know, where does that leave us? It doesn't feel to me like Erlang's popularity has swelled to, you know, in, in reflection of that. It's still around. There's still mm. interesting things going on there. I don't know. I just think it's an interesting question. If Erlang was right, why are we using Clojure? And if, <laughs> you know, what, so what is, I don't know. That seems like there's got to be something interesting there. I don't know. Maybe it's the fact that Clojure didn't try to solve that problem. And so we can use whatever the latest technology is that makes sense for that distributed platform. I don't know. I don't feel like the the workloads that I've worked on have done a particularly great job of taking advantage of of the distributed context in the way that I would expect Erlang's standard library would, would help with. I don't know. What's your experience? Yeah I, think, yeah, I think what you said about processes being ever more transient and ever more short-lived and you sort of think of like place-oriented programming and like computing itself, I think, you know, 10 certainly 15 and 20 years ago was very place oriented in terms of mm -hmm. like you ran program on the server you think about today like you know who knows what server you're running on and might be migrated out from underneath you without a moment's notice and yeah. hopefully not even notice like right. such a different context and yeah i think that would be i remember there were things like distributed atoms <laughs> yeah was a, a project i saw a while ago and yeah there's been some definitely some like thoughts about closure closure in a networked environment yeah i don't know I, I i think that would be really interesting to see like in 2020 like what makes sense for the kinds of programs we write today and and i wonder if that's maybe a little bit why the things like stms that the refs in, in stm didn't make mm. so much sense because you couldn't like great you've got some state on one process on one server but if you've got three servers how do i coordinate that state between them so talk about challenging distributed systems problems like this is pretty much the core kind of problem so i don't think it's you know there's no easy answers but if anyone out there's looking for a summer project uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm interested to see you know what's i think yeah like. i think it's kind of interesting so i mean it's i guess it seems to me i wonder if maybe we we just haven't like I know I have not really internalized whatever lessons there are to be learned from Erlang. I, I've sort of read about it a little, but I've never used it deeply enough to to have really learned um, sort of philosophical lessons that one would, would need. But it seems to me like we get where we need to go enclosure with, with basically, I think it comes down to either you use some kind of message queue, right? So like a Kafka or mm -hmm. SQS or something to communicate sort of a stream of, of data. And of course, that, that's not coordinated in, in the way that an Atom or an, an STM is. Or you know that you need a coordinated data store. And so you pull out whatever database makes sense for the workload you've got. And we've got a wide variety of those available now. A nice managed Postgres or a Datomic or a, you know, whatever. And you're able to get your work done, I think, with that. And I don't know if that's... I guess even the Erlang model of like sending a stream of messages to some particular actor 
that may be local or remote and telling it to do a series of things is not really how I think about designing solutions to problems. Most of the problems that I've run into anyway, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the answer. It's, it's just Erlang is a well-designed solution or a substrate on which to implement solutions of the shape that we don't need. I don't, I don't know. Or at least we don't know we need. I don't know. Hmm. So we're recording this in April 2020, which is not a great time for the world. And most people are you know, at home at the moment. And so uh, I, I understand you're wing from home at the moment during the pandemic. So what's that been like for you? How are you finding that? Yeah, I think it's hard to know, right? You, As always, you sort of judge your place in the world. You just have to look around and judge yourself in your context. And so I've actually, I've been working from home probably for maybe a decade now. Um, right. Through a couple different jobs. And so in that regard, like I'm, I'm well set up and, and know how to do my, my work well from <laughs> home. It includes important things like, for me at least, a office door that I can close. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, it's a little, you know, I've got the kids are home from the schools are, are closed down. So they're doing, they're doing schoolwork at home, which had, you know, it's caused some, some network disruptions, a few more simultaneous zoom sessions than, than our <laughs> home network is usually set up for. And, but they're, you know, my, my kids are old enough. They mostly can, can do the work on their own. My wife helps out there where, where they need it. So it hasn't been too disruptive for me, but I don't know that that's particularly, I don't know how, how common that experience is. It is from the way people talk. It seems like there's a lot of people out of work and there's a lot of people who are not used to working from home that are working from home. And mm. so I don't know how, how are things going for you? Um, you have to regular uh, kids more than you normally would. <laughs> yeah. So my kids are all under five. So mm. you know, they would go to kindergarten a couple of days in the morning. So that's, that's no longer happening at the moment but other than that you know we're not seeing friends or friends aren't dropping around uh, to sure. do play dates um and we're not allowed to go on playgrounds uh, which is i mean oh wow it's good but uh, kind of because that's you know, pretty disruptive live on middle surfaces for i see multiple days you'd, you know you've got no idea who's been on the playground sure. know, even an hour before you so yeah, there's there's that, but you know they're they're doing pretty well. I think we got a Disney Plus subscription uh, <laughs> yeah. to help fill in the gaps sometimes. Where, sure, yeah, people need a break, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we're all pretty fortunate. So, last thing, do you want to tell me a little bit about some three D printing stuff that you've been <laughs> doing, and kind of your yeah, what hardware have you got? What are you? How do you sort of do the stuff you're doing? Yeah, so this is a this is my wife got me a three D printer. I guess it was last Christmas, so I've had it a little over a year now. And I didn't know for sure what I was going to do with it. But it turns out the thing I love doing is fixing things around the house, right? So like hmm. custom, little custom plastic solutions for things. So I don't know, like my daughter had a dresser in her in her bedroom that she loved, but the the little handle, you know, it was some used furniture even when we got it, I think, but uh, the little handle had had fallen off and the screws were stripped out. And so we could have just gotten a a handle, but giving her the opportunity to sketch out what she wanted. And then, and then uh, you do my best by (laughs) to translate it into a 3d model and, and print it. And then, you know, so, and, and the great thing about the 3d printing, the thing that, that that I like about it is that um, like I've done word working before again, not 
mostly to solve problems more than like as an art form. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But you do one, right? You make a thing out of wood. And if it's exactly right, great. And if it's not exactly right, maybe you can modify it after you've made it, right? To make it work. And then if you finally get it just just right and you need another one, you have almost as much work to do <laughs> as you did with the first one, right? <laughs> but with the 3D printing, you know, you can make a thing and if it's not right, you can make adjustments to the model, right? The precise model and get precise adjustments to it. And then when you finally get it right, you can just make more. So like another thing that I did... Um, She's got uh, she's got a pair of gerbils and she had a problem. You have to have a problem to have a solution, right? She had a problem where the little ceramic bowls that she puts their food in would get full of bedding. So there's like this, you know, it's like um, gerbil bedding is is like um, sawdust, wood peelings or whatever. Yeah, it's like a uh, like yeah. larger pieces of sawdust, right? And so they would, you know, of course they're just little rats, and so they <laughs> run around and kick stuff up and cover their food in bedding material or whatever. So what she really wanted was a cover. And then a way to elevate it off the ground so that it wouldn't get bedding in it. So I made a little, I designed a little, um, a sort of a dome with a, with an opening in the front and little hooks on the back so that it could hook onto the screen side of the, of the cage they're in, as well as lift it up off the ground. And, and so this, it's this little dome thing that you can clip on the, on the screen. And then the ceramic bowl slides in from the side and sort of clicks into place. So that's really, you know, really rewarding. And she needed two of them, one for each gerbil. So I was able to print two identical ones. And six months <laughs> later, when the gerbils had eaten through the, <laughs> you know, because they shred everything they can get their teeth on. When they, yeah. They'd shredded the hooks or whatever so that it wasn't working anymore. I could just print another one. And so that's it, that kind of thing that's, that's quite satisfying. So I don't know if that's appealing to anybody. I, I the, the printer I have is an Ender 3, which is, I think, among the cheapest kinds of 3D printers that are out there. And there's a lot of ways to get into it. I'm not really into like detailed adjustments of it or, or messing with specific kinds of materials. I'm just using the cheapest PLA I can find plastic and, and it's an inexpensive printer. And I use, um, it's a nice website. I use uh, onshape.com for the 3d modeling. Hmm. They have free and premium plans and the premium plans are priced for like <laughs> full-time CAD users. So kind of out, okay. <laughs> outside my, um, Oh, it's, I'm sorry. It's, it's on shape, on shape.com. Uh, right. But they have a free tier and the, the trade-off there is you can't have private models, right? So your, your model is public uh, for anyone to see, which is fine for my gerbil covers or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's great because it's, it allows you to, it's got like a constraint based vector system. So you can sketch the outline of what you want almost mm-hmm. freehand. And then I have a pair of cheap calipers that I use to get measurements off of. So like, so I can measure that ceramic bowl to get yeah. the right. And you, and then you, so you can add those measurements afterwards and things sort of snap into place and, and then you can extrude wow. and rotate and whatever. And um, anyway, so I, I recommend it. Um, I got into it. So on shape was like the thing that I started with. Um, and then you can, you can export uh, files from that. And our local uh, library back when, we were allowed to go there had um they have a they have 3d printers that you can use for cheap and so that was how i got into it and that's why i had some confidence that i would enjoy having my own 3d printer right okay yeah nice on shape looks like a very sophisticated piece of software to run in, the, in a web browser um, yeah it's fantastic i recommend chrome and a good computer <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> but yeah i mean it's a full 3d um modeling system with yeah it's 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 pretty good yeah, so looking back on the thing, it looks like about once every month or two, I find some little problem I can I can fix with a 
with a 3D print of some sort. And yeah, I enjoy it. it usually, it only usually it only takes me a couple hours to get the model I want, and then an hour or two to print it, and I have a little thing that you know either works or doesn't. And <laughs> how strong is the the plastic? I've never done 3D printing, but yeah, it's kind of interesting. So it's really with the kind of extrusion printers that that most of us have, you know, that you can get inexpensively, so like the Ender Three. Like I'm sure you've seen how they work, right? Where it's squirting out sort of a stream of yeah of, of plastic. Yeah. So the the strength properties are quite different in different directions. So um, oh. it turns out to be one of the key. It's actually one of the most challenging parts of the design for me, at least when I'm trying to make these things that actually are supposed to work. So um, let's see if I can describe it. So if you make so imagine a um, I don't know, imagine a hook, right? Let's say you wanted to make a hook. Mm-hmm. to hook things on. Yeah. If you were to print it such that it prints out vertically with both the hook and the anchor sticking up in the air, right? Then the layers mm-hmm. of plastic would be layered in such a way that any force you put on the hook would be pulling those layers apart, right? That's right. that's weak. <laughs> and that that's, mm-hmm. you know, relatively weak and you need a large surface area if there's going to be any any pressure in that direction. So your hook printed that direction if you wanted it to work would look more like a um, boat anchor right like you'd you'd want it to be really wide Uh so much much stronger would be to print that same shape but laying down so that the lines of plastic that are extruded are following the the curve of the hook so now when you Mm. put pressure on it it's a long you know it's it's pulling in the direction that the plastic is already a single piece and it's actually quite strong that direction so one of the things i did recently we have um my son and I started, uh, uh, he wrestles in high school. And so um, since wrestling season is very much over now, decided uh, we decided we were going to do some, some weightlifting, uh, you know, in the basement together. And so we, you know, we had, I had some equipment that I hadn't used in years. So we pulled it out of the storage room and, and set it up and realized that somewhere along the way we had lost the mechanism that holds the weights onto the bar. So this bar has like threads, rather large threads on the uh, end of yes. the bar. There's like these Mm -hmm. little metal, I think they call them collars, that you're supposed to screw on the end to hold the weights. So we looked around, and sure enough, we can get them online, but not as easily as you might think. And they're going to be here in, you know, three to six weeks or whatever. And I'm like, I wonder wonder if I can. (laughs) So I did my first threaded thing that I'd ever printed. And again, it took me, you know, an an hour or two to measure, make some measurements and draw some sketches. And it works great. So I, you know, I printed one and it fit on there well. So I printed a second one. And so it's strong. You asked about strength. So it's strong enough to quite securely wrench down the weights to hold them on the end of the bar. I don't know that, you know, as soon as we have real metal ones, we're going to switch to those. But for now, it's <laughs> it's certainly better than having nothing holding the weights on the end, right? Um, and I think I think it'd be strong enough. You could probably you could probably drop the bar on the end, and a couple a dozen right. kilograms would would be fine. So interesting. Yeah, I, I just need to see if I can find someone or or a school or a library or something that has one um, to uh, and find something to make with it. Because that's yeah. right. <laughs> You need both, right? You need a problem <laughs> and you need a solution. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you about everything that you've been yeah, involved you in. Yeah, you too, Daniel. Closure. I wonder if we'll see a third edition of Joy of Closure one of these years. I'm not sure yeah. If, how much if you, is left to update. But If you or if anyone you know feels like contributing to one, let me know. <laughs> 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 hmm. yeah. All right. Yeah. People know where to find you. Um, That's so, right. Yeah. 
Thanks very much, Chris. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Yep. Have a good evening.